for us to be reminded of uh, God's sovereignty, and it's also good for us to be reminded of of old worship songs from the early 2000s and late 90s, uh, for everyone that had their day going through their head as that uh, song was read. I always thought he sounded an awful lot like Travis Tritt, and the first time I heard that song I thought it was Travis Tritt. I just aged myself, because no one remembers either Third Day nor Travis Tritt. So, um, alright, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 today, uh, and we're going to be continuing looking at Exodus, because Exodus is a metaphor for the, those things that we want to leave behind in 2019, and those things, sorry, in 2018, and those things that we want to walk towards in 2018. The, the book of Exodus was consistently been used throughout scriptures, a metaphor for the people of Israel of of leaving bondage and going to the promised land, of leaving slavery and the things that were destroying them and walking towards the promised land. So that's what we're looking at. And and we met Moses as a baby last week and the miraculous circumstances surrounding that. And this week we're going to meet adult Moses. And, And the first time that we meet Moses, we meet the revolutionary Moses. And this is really interesting for me. So I want us to start here with one piece of information, then we're going to go back. So the piece of information that we're starting with is in Exodus chapter 7, verse 7, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh, okay? So when Moses gets to doing what he had been called to do, he was 80 years old. This thing that we just saw the miraculous birth, the miraculous circumstances around that doesn't happen for 80 years after that story, but at this point, we meet Moses. And Moses, uh, when we first meet Moses as an adult, it's in Exodus 2, chapter 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at, at their hard labor. And this is fascinating for me because there is a ton of story contained in that, uh, in, in, in this, because what we know is that is that Moses spent 40 years living in Goshen. That's where he's going to go after this. Uh, and so he's about 40 years old at this time. And, and I know roughly what it feels like to be 40 years old. I, I've been there for a little while now. I get it a little bit. And Moses is, uh, is a grown-up. And one of the things that happens... And this always happens to me in every milestone of my life. One of the things that definitely happens when you turn 40 is you realize, or for me, maybe not all of you, some of you are amazing, but uh, you realize that you will never be on a top 40 under 40 list. And that's a milestone that you're just like, ah. Because no one has a top 80 under 80. Like, that's not a thing that exists. Maybe it should. Maybe we should have a top 80 over 65 or a top 65 over 65. Dennis is now eligible. He is my, one of my uh, top 65 over 65. Um, but yeah, but Moses was a grown-up. But Moses is a relatively unique grown-up in this situation because he has been raised in Egypt both inside and outside of the power structures of Egypt. Moses has been raised by the Pharaoh's daughter, so he's experienced the, the privilege and the power of being in deep inside the structures of Egypt, but yet he's always been outside of that because he's always been the adopted Hebrew son. And he's also been able to see and be part of this group of Hebrews and yet never really part of them because he was, he was always part of Egypt. 
And, and so he's always been in and not of and, and never being part. He's part of the ethnic slave group, but also being part of the privileged oppressor class. He's both and at the same time. And, and, and he cannot, and that's a divide that can't, cannot be bridged because the, 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 the people that are being crushed are going to see his privilege and, and say, why aren't you doing anything about this? And the people that have the privilege are going to say, at its heart, uh, you need to. So we're not going to worry about it. I'm just going to have to read because this is uh, Connor once made the joke <laughs> that 60% uh, of the time I can make this work. So today is part of the 40% of the time that we cannot. But that's what happens when you have a, uh, uh, a shovel and you ask a new handle to be attached to that shovel every day. So, um, so, Mo so Moses on the inside and on the outside. Can you just... So he's been part of the privilege and the trappings of Egypt. Next, so so we see what happens next. And the next thing that happens is this: if you're following along your Bibles, Exodus chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. One day when Moses has been grown up, and he went out to his own people and watched them at their hard labor. So he's seeing them at their hard labor. He's experiencing the oppression that they're experiencing. And when he's grown up and a forty-year-old man, he sees. The Egyptian, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This is very interesting because it tells us the kind of person that Moses was at this point in time, he sees the oppression of his people and he can no longer stand back and watch it. Now he want, wants to intervene. And not only does he have, not only does he want to intervene, he has every ability to intervene. He has been trained militarily by the Egyptian royalty. He has been training his entire life for this very moment and looking this way and that. He says, now's the time. No more. He is intervening. I was spending a lot of time with this and I'm not trying to be like, oh, Mr. Cool Pastor with the, with the illustrations. Those of you who know me don't know know that that's not where I live. But the closest, the closest example of what Moses is like at this very moment is Killmonger from Black Panther, the movie that came out last year. Those of you who aren't familiar, uh, there's a moment where the villain comes to, to retake Wakanda and his name is, uh, is uh, they call him Killmonger. He's been raised uh, in Oakland and he has been trained by the CIA. And there's this one point where they see this villain come in who's destroying things and, and the CIA agent who's there says, he's one of ours. We trained him to do this. We trained him to overcome and destroy the leadership that is there and raise up new leadership in his place. Moses is, is, is killmonger in this moment. He's been trained by the Egyptians to get a new deal for the Hebrews so that they can have their honest and true share of Egypt. And I want to be really clear what Moses does here because we've all seen the Moses movies and they all try and clean it up for Moses. Most of them try and make this look like an accident. 
and, and, and make it look like, well, Moses wasn't really that bad. He just sort of had an accident with this Egyptian. The Bible is in no way unequivocal. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed him. It, he, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. According to the Canadian Criminal Code, that is murder in the first degree. Looking this way and that qualifies as premeditation and planning. It is planned and deliberate. He killed him and he hid him in the sand. That's who Moses is right now. He's a violent revolutionary at this point in time, at 40 years old. But it doesn't stop there. Can you go to the next one, Simon, please? No, back one. Back. And the next day, so he, so he commits murder and the next day, but not only does he want to be the violent revolutionary, he wants to be the leader of his people. But the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting and asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Okay, just a second. Sorry, technology, hey? If I had done what I did years ago and just had my notes on a piece of paper, then that would have been fine. Moses is not only a murderer at this point, he's not only the revolutionary leader, uh, revolutionary, he wants to be a leader. We see that he sees the two Hebrews fight and he asks the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Now Moses not only wants to be their military leader, he wants to be their judge. And you can understand why. He, he studied under the Egyptians. He learned the ways of the Egyptians. He's got the re, some of the resources of the Egyptians. And if anyone is equipped to stand and lead the Hebrew against the Egyptians, it is Moses. If anybody should lead the revolution and the subsequent negotiation of how we're going to deal with the Egyptians, it ought to be Moses. And I want to stop and I want us to just dwell in this moment for a minute. Because we live in a revolutionary time. We do. And not that all of our revolutions are pointed in the same direction. They're not. In this room, the revolutions that people are seeking, there's probably as many revolutions as people, that people are seeking as are people in this room. But there are people who want change. They want structural and political change. They want religious change. They want, they want ethical and societal change. That is, that is a thing that is happening. And, it, and some people want the current change to keep going. Some people want the current change to be retreated back to something that existed beforehand. But the reality is that we are living in a revolutionary time. I see it in the statements that people write and I also hear it in your voices when you talk to me, because when I talk to you, you also want revolution. But when I talk to you one-on-one, -on -one, most of the time you don't talk about like grand societal changes. You're talking about like changes that you want to see happen in you, in your family, in the people that are closest to you, and all of these things coming together. We are living in a revolutionary time. And we can imagine the violent, angry revolutionary or at least I can, because that's what I want. 
That's what I want a good chunk of the time. That's inside me. And I long, I really do often, long for the person trained in the ways of this world to grab hold of this world and to wrestle it into submission. To finally just grab hold of this thing that has gone so far astray and wrestle out of it some sort of justice and freedom and hope and blessing for all of us. I want to see that happen. I long for someone who is willing I long for someone who is willing, when they see two Hebrews fighting, I long for someone who is willing to say, oh, by the way, you're the one in the wrong. Who's willing to see the one in the wrong, say that you're wrong, and stand up and say, and have the backbone to say, yeah, you're wrong. You ought not to be doing this. You not, ought, ought not to be behaving in an oppressive manner. And not both sides this and say, why are you attacking your brothers and sisters? In my own circumstance, I want someone to, to grab a hold of Christians and shake them into submission and say, why are we behaving this way? Why are we valuing things that are not loving God and loving our neighbor? Why are we valuing things that are just designed to give us temporary power when we have been called to an eternal kingdom? Why are we doing this? I long for that. That is inside me. And Moses is in the prime of his life. Moses is a 40-year-old man. He is, he is cut and primed. He's old enough that people are going to actually listen to him. But he's young enough that he actually has the strength and the energy to do things. He's strong and he's able and willing to commit violence to, to, get, what he, to get what is right. He speaks the language of power. The revolution ought to be at hand. The time is right for Moses to begin to exercise his plan to give the Hebrew slaves their right and fair portion of the Egypt they have built. A better share of the resources and powers of Egypt. But it's interesting because God does not give one wit about the resources and the powers of Egypt. And we see that later on when the disciples are confronting Jesus saying, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, this is from Mark chapter 10, and most of us have heard this story. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to, and I like this story best, um, even though I don't think it's the most accurate one. There's another version of this story in the book of Matthew where James and John uh, call their mom and get their mom to ask, uh, uh, get their mom to ask Jesus for these positions in the kingdom. I think that that's more accurate. I think that that's what they were like, hey, mom, can you? And James and John and the sons of Zebedee came to him, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, we asked. They were just, sorry, always the best way to, like, what, you, guys, you guys that have children, what are you doing if your child comes to you and says, Hey, Mom and Dad, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. <laughs> How's that conversation going to go? Are you being like, oh, this is about to be fun? Um, <laughs> What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And when they're asking for that, they're asking for power and authority. And when they're asking for that, they're not necessarily asking for something bad. They're asking and saying, we want to take responsibility for when our Hebrew hits a fellow Hebrew that we say, you're in the wrong, stop doing that. They want to take that responsibility. They want to take that power and authority. They, want to, they don't want to hide in the background. They put us up on the pedestal. We'll make sure that things are done right. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. 
Jesus said to them, you will drink your cup, I drink. It be baptism with the baptism I baptize with. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. James and John are asking for authority and responsibility and leadership. We see this constantly from the, from the disciples. Is this the time? Is this when we fight? Is this when we get our, rightfully, our rightful share of the Roman Empire? That we get a better portion of the resources and powers of the Roman Empire that we deserve to have? Is this when we get the authority that we've been looking for? We see it constantly from the disciples. We see it constantly from us as well. I see my brothers and sisters in their social medias. I see my brothers and sisters as Christians in the places where they go. And they're asking the question, is this when we fight? Is this when we take the power back? Is this when we finally get our worldview asserted over all other worldviews? Is this when we get everybody to pay attention to us and, and, and have everybody say that we're right? Is this when we rule? Is this when we become powerful? And just as Jesus said to James and John, he also says to us today, he says this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The pathway to revolution for Jesus, the pathway to revolution for the God who created this universe, does not come from violent oppression. It does not come from the assertion of authority. It comes by sacrificially giving of yourself as a ransom for many. That was the way he chose to work. Because God does not care one whit about dividing the resources of the places where we are in bondage. God cares about getting us out of there to a promised land where there is blessing and justice and milk and honey for everyone. We settle for so much less than what God has planned for us when we get concerned about the resources and the power balances of this world and we forget that what we have been offered is a kingdom that will never end. The man said to Moses, Who made you ruler and judge about over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptians? Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. It did not go well for Moses. His supposed revolution ended with him running away. Moses fled from Pharaoh, went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. And he sat down by that well for most of the next 40 years. Of course, other things happened as well. He had a family. He... But it was 40 years before he was fit and able and ready to do what God called him to do, which was not to bring down the power structures of Egypt and replace them with more equitable structures, but it was to lead the people out. And I want to be really clear as I'm saying this, that there are people and groups of people on this planet right now and in our province and in our city and in our world who have been walked on and oppressed, and we ought to stand with and for them. 
And we ought to stand against the oppressor. And we ought to have the backbone when we see people in conflict to say, you are doing wrong and you need to stop doing wrong. We ought to have the conviction to do that. I am not in any way shying away from that or stepping back from that. However, if we are followers of Jesus, we need to understand unequivocally that the kingdom of God is not a matter of politics The kingdom of God is not a matter of economics. The kingdom of God is not a matter of asserting yourself with authority over those people. The kingdom of God is about getting out of all of this thing to the promised land that has been planned for us. And that heaven crashes into earth where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain and death shall be no more. Let's not settle for having the laws that we want passed. Let's not settle for chasing for having the right political representatives. Let's not settle for that. Let's work for that, but let's not settle for that. Because if we settle for that, we are losing out on what God has genuinely planned for us. A kingdom that lasts forever. So, what do we do with this? Because I'm also a 40-year-old man. that wants to intervene. I'm also a 40-year-old man who sees the injustice. I'm also a 40-year-old man that, that, that feels some call to step into this. And the question that I am asking myself in this moment, not just in this sermon, but in everything, is how do we do this then? And I don't have a good answer for you, I don't know. But I do know that the way of the Lord is not looking this way and that and striking someone dead and burying them in the sand. And the way of the and the way of the the, uh, the way of our God is not necessarily just intervening in disputes and saying you are wrong and why are you hitting your fellow brother or sister in this way? That it's not only that. But if I genuinely want to see those changes in this world come about through the work of God and the Holy Spirit now and for eternity, what I need to be willing to do is to lay all of that down. What I need to be willing to do is to lay all of that down and sacrifice my life. And not just my life in the terms of like having someone come and shoot me or something like that. That would be easy. Martyrdom, I'm sorry, is is like I like I love the idea of it but like you can get a lot of dumb young men to give, to, to to be martyrs for something what's I, I need to be able to to humbly live for something for the next 40 years I need to be prepared to sit by a well until God says now and are we willing to do that are we willing to wait on the Lord are we willing to trust in the Lord are we willing to trust that his ways are higher than our ways? Are we willing to trust that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men? Are we willing to trust that the strength of God, the the weakness of God is, is stronger than the strength of men? Are we willing to trust that God has something better for us than those things that we can grab a hold of and wrestle into our control? And I'm being as honest as I possibly can. I don't know if I'm able to do that. 
but I know intellectually that that's what we're called to. And I want that to be exemplified in my actions. And as we come to this table, as we come to participate in communion, as we do every week, I want us to be struck by the difference in the method, methodologies of this world and the methodologies that we've been called to as followers of Jesus. Because I know that whatever, I know that there's a hundred different leanings towards revolution in this room while there's not. Yeah, yeah. There's at least a hundred because we're all of divided minds and we want about four of them at the same time. But, when Jesus was called in the fullness of time to intervene in God's ways, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he went and he died as unjust a death as we could imagine. And on the third day rose again according to the scriptures. And are we willing to do that as well? So as we take a moment in prayer before we come to this table, what I would like us to, to pray for as the Holy Spirit leads us is to just ask the question, what methodologies are we holding on to that the Holy Spirit is asking us to lay down? What violence are we looking for? What power are we looking for? What, what vengeance are we looking for as we come to this moment that we need to lay aside understanding that God's ways are not our ways and God's ways are higher than our ways? In what ways do we need to trust his work for justice and peace in, uh, in ways that we do not understand? Both externally on a big issue scale, but also internally in our own lives. What do we have to lay down in order to truly trust the Lord so that we will be prepared when the time comes to do what he has called us to do?